I did all that. I didn't put in my microphone for the camera. So you'll have to bear with me one moment here. Blustery day. Did that storm surprise you? I wasn't quite ready. So busy enjoying the slightly nicer weather that we've been having. Matthew chapter 24 has got to be, in our era, one of the most important things in the Bible to understand. Because we live at the back end of about 200 years of Protestant Christianity getting it enormously wrong. Like so enormously wrong, like they're missing the boat. And, well, it's not going to survive. It'll just collapse. There are Christians in these movements. There always are. But the generations which follow them in these movements will not be Christian. When you get something wrong at the start, it might look small. But once it grows, that angle can get pretty big. And so thinking that the part we heard read this morning, chapter 24, verse is really 4 through 35, is your roadmap for the end of the world is about the worst, the biggest foolish mistake you could make because it's not about the end of the world. Jesus is very clear about that. The text is very clear about that. People just don't like to reckon with how it doesn't sound like they thought it would sound. And then what he says in verse 36 is the part no one really wants. We don't like this at all. We hate this that of that day on which Jesus shall return, nobody knows. Not even the Son. And that idea was hated so much that in the the copy editing that went on, all of these copies of copies of early documents that we have, that bit of the Son, it dropped out in some of the later copies. You know why? Because people were offended by it. How could Jesus not know? Well, it probably didn't destroy their faith that moment, but the point is when you cut anything out, eventually it destroys the whole body. I didn't even think about what that could mean physically. I was just talking about the church. So when Jesus says of that day and hour, that is the day of his return, answering the disciples' question, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The second and third question they ask, mind you, not the first. Everything up to this point has been in answering the first question, which I'll get to. But he answers the second question. When's the end of the world going to be, Jesus? And how will we know? Dude, I don't even know, guys. Only the Father does. But it's kind of cool that way. So, like, get ready for, well, (laughs) an ordeal. But the kind of ordeal that doesn't make you sit down and cry. Kind of makes you beat up. Get up. Beat your chest. And decide to try again. Now, we'll come to that with Philippians here in a moment. But first, just lock your heart onto verse 36 and recognize everything that came before, before it is anything else, is an answer to the question that the disciples ask when Jesus tells them that they're wasting their time looking at the pretty building, which happens to be Herod the Great's temple and honor and glory of the ancient world that perhaps outshone even Solomon's in terms of its size and cost. Horseman Street is nice. Uh, There's better churches in town. You know, Zion's pretty good looking. They're not even close. Notre Dame did just burn down. 
But, I mean, that stood for a long time. Gorgeous. The temple, they're talking about it. And he just turns on him. He said, do you understand this is nothing? And then he walks off. Now, I mean, if I did that to you, I think you'd be like, ah, uh, pastor, what you been eating? <laughs> you okay? Well, that's what they do. It says at the Mount of Olives. And what's important to know historically or geographically, really, is so the Temple Mount is on this giant mountain, this big temple. And you walk out right where they are. When he says these things, you can see the Mount of Olives across the valley. And they go out and they go down and they cross the valley. And he's hanging out in the Mount of Olives. They come up and they ask him, like, ah, you just said this city that we thought you were supposed to rule the world from is going to get torn down. What gives with that? Right? That's the question. And the first thing he says, verse 4, take heed, no one deceives you. <laughs> I mean, don't go too fast, right? Why are you listening to me? It's a fair question, isn't it? Isn't it? Many will come in Christ's name saying, I am the Christ. Well, that's a good reason not to trust me, or to trust me. I haven't said that yet. But I don't think you have to say that to deceive many. Many will be deceived. And you'll hear about all this stuff. Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, pestilences, uh, pandemics, I think is the way we would say that these days. Earthquakes. All this, the beginning of sorrows, guys. Come on. This is life on earth. On earth. Like the polar ice caps, you're worried about that? I mean, that's life on earth. This, this is going and coming and breaking and falling. And I, we don't really know. It's spinning out of control. We might fall into the sun sometime. I don't know. That's actually what God says, though. It's messed up. From the beginning, the sorrow has been here. Don't let that make you think now it's over. The fall of the U.S., if that should happen, will hardly be the end of the world. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Well, that's one you probably haven't experienced yet, nor do I think you necessarily will, which is why it's helpful to remember who asked the question. His apostles. Did they die before the destruction of the temple? Yeah, most of them. So don't assume it's you when the Bible says you, because sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just the apostles who asked the question and got the answer. We're going to die. Before the temple gets destroyed. Hated by all nations for my name's sake. Indeed they were. Many will be offended. Will betray one another. And will hate one another. That's a falling away within the early church. Which in fact did happen. It was quite a divided place. Denominations existed. But not like organizationally. Just divisions and schisms and breaks. As verse 11. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. It's not a surprise. Been going on a long time. And then the result Hello, America. Because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. That describes what I see when I turn on Twitter, I'll tell you that. The lawlessness has abounded. For so long we have said, no, it's not really wrong. It's not that wrong. Oh, no, that's not wrong. The things that are evil. And now the love of many is growing cold. Ah. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel, that is the, what Jesus was going to do, will be preached in all the world that is before all nations. And it was to the extent of the Mediterranean world. Everyone who was anyone in that place that used that word to mean what that place meant heard this message before 70 AD. Maybe even got to India and beyond with Thomas. 
And this gospel will be preached to all the world. And then the end, the telos, not the end, the telos, the completion will come. What's the completion? The end of the old covenant, which has been sworn for quite a while to be destroyed. And when Jesus cleanses that temple with the whip, he ain't kidding. This is right after that. Like, I'm done. Getting out. You're going to kill me outside. But that one's over, right? Therefore, you apostles and you Christians hearing this read in the early church in Judea, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, that is, if you're me, it is even the Bible that I'm supposed to slow down and realize none of you know what I'm talking about when I say abomination of desolation. And we need to circle this one and deal with it. What's Daniel talking about there? I'll come back to it. But when you see it, you're supposed to, if you're in Judea, flee to the mountains. To the extent that nobody should go back and you really don't want to try to do this while delivering babies at the same time. Because you will actually have to flee Judea. Because the Roman armies will be marching down to destroy a zealot slash half Pharisee army that has taken over the Temple Mount, has slaughtered many of the Sadducee priests in the courtyard, shedding human blood in that temple. And the empire that really could care less about this religion is done with this religion's fighting back. Now at this point, not Christianity though. And so when the Christians in the city saw this happening in the Temple Mount, abominations and desolations galore. History tells us the Christians actually left Jerusalem before the Romans got there, and they lived through it. And anyone who stayed in Jerusalem, it was indeed one of the most disgusting, lengthy starvation seizes ever. Don't apply this to your life too fast. It was real advice to people once upon a time where they were. Now, the question is, how does it apply to us? Because it does. I'll come back to that, too. But remember that even after this great tribulation, when the days are shortened, and I have to wonder if the martyrdom days of the early church were not shortened for us. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but after that, 23, 24, there will still be calls for false Christs and false prophets and fake Jesuses, people worshiping all manner of gods. And if they say to you, go out, let's build a compound in the desert, David Koresh, don't do it. Jeez, it's right there. Because as lightning comes from the east to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And this is where we must understand the coming of the Son of Man from Daniel, same section with the abomination desolation, is not about Jesus coming back. It's about when Jesus ascended into the highest heavens. It's sort of like the Pentecost completion moment in heaven. Like, like on earth, on Pentecost, we see the ascension's fulfillment. And as Christians, by faith, a, a new thing springs forth. But then the fulfillment physically with the sword is when Rome comes and crushes the temple and wipes it away. Because that's how God does it. He uses the police to combat evil. We'll get the politics and police here in the Philippians text. It's right there in the text, believe it or not. In any case, so don't be deceived because destruction will continue and people will tell lies and then it will be topsy-turvy. And this is where, so 29 through 31 is a reference to Isaiah. 
You can't just take this and throw it anywhere. You have to go back and study Isaiah and see what he's talking about. You find out not only Isaiah, but Amos also gives a prophecy about the sun turning to darkness at noonday or at day. And Amos, his prophecy that it takes place, that the sun turns to darkness, happens in his lifetime with a swarm of locusts that, in fact, blot out the sun. Now, when Jesus quotes this later here and talks about how the blotting out of the sun in kind of real time is the fulfillment of his ability to move nature, also comes to pass in Isaiah saying, I'm going to destroy Jerusalem. And that's what he says back in the Isaiah text. I'm going to blot out the sun. I'll destroy Jerusalem. Jerusalem gets destroyed. Now Jesus is saying after this, who knows? Who knows where God is after Jerusalem's gone? Look at the whole world still thinks he's there. Think about it. When he's right here, and that means then that he's right here, was and will be again. So different. I'm going to jump ahead so that we don't use up too much of your time. But when he says in verse 34, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. You have a choice. He said everything that came before this in the text will happen before a generation passes away. And you have to decide whether he's telling the truth or not. That was a really crafty, clever idea that can get you out of thinking a generation means what a generation usually means, which all of us know, and most of history knows, it's give or take 30, 40 years, you know, a generation of kids, I don't know, they come and go. It's about that much. But in order to not have this be true, the idea has come up that what is really talking about is the Jews as a people that the Jews will continue as a generation of ethnicity until Jesus returns, unbelieving as such. Can you see the anti-Semitism present in that thought, by the way? I mean, I mean, it's kind of easy to say, well, that's a bit dark. <laughs> you know what you think? Uh, even if it were true, I'd hate to think it were true. And the Bible surely doesn't say that here or anywhere. It says Jews, Gentile, gone in Christ, all one now. So I just don't know where you get that for this text. Although I'm open to be convinced but until you can tell me that this clearly means Jews and you show me from some other use of Ganea throughout the rest of Scripture to mean Jews and not everybody else, I'm just not with you. And then I got to take Jesus as meaning that the sun got dark before the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and at the same time. And the only place I know in history where we got record of the sun getting dark, well, it wasn't 70 AD. It was bigger. Just a couple days after this, when he's hanging on the cross. The sign of the Son of Man in heaven, if you missed it, was once for all. Once for all. And it echoes now. And this is where then, as we look back at this text, remembering we don't know the day or the hour of the world having this happen to it. You can see a echo, a model, a picture of what happens when... Hmm, when cities destroy themselves. The Bible is filled with histories of cities destroying themselves. I don't know what that means. I know that Chicago and Portland, Seattle, D.C. Did you see what happened in D.C. yesterday or last night? Heavens. 
Christians, if we're to take wisdom from this, is to recognize that cities grow where Christians are. Good people, too. Like all the natural law, it works for good and evil, but Christians pursue the good because we follow what it says. And so especially where Christians are, cities will grow because God will bless what Christians do because they're going to do good things. He also blesses evil men when they do good things. That's how he is. But over time, there's evil men who see all that good. They come in. They want more of it for themselves. They begin to find ways to take more of it for themselves. And at a certain point, there's like a happy medium where it kind of works. Because king is how God made the world to work. And you are supposed to have someone at top who kind of takes in and distributes. That's what the king does. We don't really live in a kingdom. So it's a different argument here. But that idea of the, the ingathering and sharing of the community, that we all care about each other's survival a lot more than what we can get out of the exchange, happens in small, Christian, believing, godly communities and becomes something that's so good, evil men want it. They come, they take it. But they don't tell the Christians that they're going to take it. They tell them we're Christian too. We're going to play along. Just let us disagree a little bit about this. Just a little bit. Won't change nothing. And then over what? A generation or 10 or 15. Oh, it takes a while, and you can repent and have it come back. I mean, you see this throughout the Old Testament. You see this throughout in congregational life. You see this in your own personal life. But the fact is, the city can get so big that it drives all the good out of it. And then God just lets it do what it does, which is also his wrath. <laughs> and so if you see in a city them desecrating God, we don't have to stay there and let them kill you. That's the advice, Christians. You don't have to stay in a city where the pagans are trying to kill you. You can move to the mountains, though, not to another city, to the mountains, the place nobody wants to go, to the place that nobody wants to build because it's not worth anything, and that's why you'll be safe there. Hi, Rockford. What a funny place we are, by the way. No one wants to be here. And yet, we got everything. Funny how things can change your perspective. Um, leaving Jesus for next week then. That day and that hour, the remaining chapter 24 and 25, he's going to dig into. And we're going to look at that next week for Christ the King Sunday. For today, what I really want to push us into then, the remaining of today, is Philippians chapter 3. And as much as I'm going to give you a little Greek, I'm not going to do the whole thing out of that yet. But Paul, these words, I think, are prescient. They are oracular. They are uh, miraculous. We need them right now. Everybody. And he starts by talking about it. Go back even to verse 10. Even to verse 7, I, what things were gained to me, I count loss. The word there starts with an S in Greek, and a true translation would start with an S in English. I've counted it loss for Christ. Yes, indeed, I count all things loss for the excellence of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Right? He'd already lost his whole life. He's a New Testament Job. Everything was left behind. Family, friends, everything. 
But he has a mind. What's wrong with him? What's right with him? That's the real question. So it is also at the end of verse, uh, verse 11, by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So the idea of resurrection in Jesus has so inspired Paul, that is inspirited, put the spirit into him, that all he can do is think about what that world would be like. Now you think, oh, it's great for Paul, right? Ah, he's not quite going to leave you there. So he says, not that I have already attained or already perfected. That's the same telos, completion word from the Matthew text. Not that I'm already telos. I'm not whole. I'm not sound. I haven't left my sin behind. But I press on that I may lay hold of that. What's that? The resurrection for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Oh, one of my great fears, St. Paul, is right now, as I endeavor to teach you the wisdom of the scriptures, I could slip up and fail to remind you that you're a Christian in the gospel, which means all of this law that the wisdom teaches you is true and that you should find in your life is not there to make you question whether you're a Christian or for you to prove that you are a Christian. They're just there because you are a Christian. And what a Christian does then is hear those Ten Commandments, that law, you shall not kill, and you think, that sounds like a good life. I think that sounds like a good life. Not killing babies to make into medicine. Not killing soldiers for wars, for powers that I don't know what they're for. I don't know. What about you? My point is, Paul knows that if we judge ourselves by the word of God, when it tells you to do something, you're going to come back finding that you were incomplete. That you were not whole. That you were not sound. But that doesn't mean that the things you strive to do are not whole and sound. They are. For the created good works of God he made before time and built into this creation to arise beneath your very fingertips as you do them. And we are to pursue this, he says, forgetting those things which lie behind, reaching forward to those, those things which are ahead. One should not come to church saying, oh my goodness, what I do this week? How will I ever go on? It's Lord, look what you saved me from this week. And I know no matter how weak I feel, this is your strength. Because it all is still going without me just fine. And even better, the less and less I do anything but let these words be on my lips. So Paul says, verse 15, Therefore let us, as many as are, tell us, mature, have this mind. The idea of the mind is going to show up a couple times in the next few verses. And it's about not like, say, your brain, like physically. It's more about like the way that you think. You might have heard the phrase that people are heavenly minded, but no earthly good. Okay, I don't care about the phrase much, but, but the mindedness there, that's what we're talking about in this text. He says that we should, if we're mature, have a mindedness like him, 
which is seeing that every day is walking toward the resurrection, which means shedding this life, shedding it, not destroying it. Just when it dies, it dies. It falls away. You let it go. You move on. Let us that are mature have this mind. And I love this next part. If in anything you think otherwise, that is, if you find in yourself the question I got asked on my YouTube show this week. Dear Pastor Fisk, you and Pastor Wolfmiller, you talk, you talk. It sounds so good. I love it. It sounds like you're ready to be martyred right now. How do I find that energy? How do I feel like you feel? I don't feel like that. I don't feel like being martyred. But the more I admit that that's actually my own cowardice, well, the more I'm thankful that God hasn't thrown me away. And the more I'm just willing to sit for a second and say, well, I guess if he's going to martyr me, since he's the God who is the God of Job and the God of Paul, who never does anything without harming, without helping, even harm makes you alive and grow, well, then if he does wish to martyr me at some point in my life, this certainly must be the best thing I'll ever experience. Now, I reckon that sounds pretty hard to believe, but it's what the Bible says. So I've just made it my own kind of personal effort to like tell myself it's true. <laughs> so if you think I'm like ready to get martyred, I'm not, but I'm telling myself that I will be if it happens. Because the Bible says we can. We should have this mind. And if we think otherwise, God will reveal us to you in time. Like, when it's time, when you need to suffer, you'll have enough. But for now, you just flee back to the word. Go back to the sanctuary. Nevertheless, because then you find to the degree that we have already attained, we, plural, have attained. He just said we haven't attained the resurrection but we have attained something, a degree of something. And the we who is that, you got to hear it as the apostles. To the degree that we have attained maturity, let us together walk by that same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Same word. Now he's going to say one more thing then. This is the next verse. This is where the text was supposed to start. Brothers, join in my example following me is so bad i can't even read it from i love the new king james with the greek so much better this is it's terrible no translation hits this as well as the greek so he, he's got you at the point where he's he's sorry i'm losing it and i love it so much um uh he's got you to the point where he's like screaming at you you must come together and not let anyone who thinks with fear stop you from moving forward with the resurrection mindset as a group and then he yells it, right? Here it comes. Sumamitai mugnesta adelphoi. And I can guarantee you he's yelling because in another verse, he's going to tell you he's crying, okay? The guy's emotional right now. Sumamitai mugnesta. In the middle of that, sumamitai. You can hear our word mimic. Sumimikde. It's not right the way I said it, but you can hear it. And then the sum on the front means to gather or to come inward or to be pulled into one. So be a singly coming together mimic of me, St. Paul says. I translated join in following my example. Ig. It's just not quite there. There's another place where Paul says it clearly enough that even the translation can't brush it away. And he says, you know, follow my example. And I honestly can't tell you off the top of my head where that is. You can Google it. 
Um, but I know it's there because my sainted grandmother, Ruth Baumgarten, God bless her, lifelong LCMS Lutheran, um, best kind of battle ox, farm girl, pious, uh, reflecting everything about her generation that was right and everything about her generation that was a little nearsighted, died in the faith, uh, gave the faith to many of us grandchildren. I remember when I was at the seminary visiting her and uh, she kind of yelled at me, actually, which wasn't her way, uh, about Paul saying, follow my example, imitate me. She yelled at me. She said, that's so selfish. Why would Paul be doing that? And I just, uh, <laughs> I had no idea what to say. You know, second year seminarian. I'm sure my, my grandma, again, did not let that dissuade her from trusting in Jesus, but I, I can give her the answer now. Why would Paul say, imitate me, Paul? Now, if you think the only reason he could do it is for a selfish reason, then Jesus should never tell you to follow him. So if you think Paul was saying to imitate Paul because all Paul ever thinks about is Paul, well, then you're right. He would be wrong. Why do you think all Paul ever thinks about is Paul? Is it because all you ever think about is you? Maybe Paul's got a different spirit working like harder. Like you got the spirit, but like you're kind of sitting on him. He loves you. He ain't going nowhere. He's going to wait, but he'd kind of like you to, you know, get up. Wake up a little. Sumamitta. Be like me, Paul says. How? I mean, again, think about Jesus here for a second, too. Try to be like Jesus. What are you going to do? Walk on water? Get born of a virgin? Preach to thousands? Be misunderstood by everybody? Get crucified? I mean, where are you going to start being like Jesus? Be a king? Paul says, you can see what that means if you look at me. Saul, stoning people to death, converted, throwing away his life because that's just the way it is. Getting a better life and actually finding himself on an adventure he couldn't even imagine. Four journeys across the Mediterranean world, living through shipwrecks, bitten by poisonous snakes, stoned to death, got up again. Now, I know it's like, well, that sounds scary, but you know what? It's also a heroic tale. And some young men wouldn't mind living such things because it's better to be a hero who dies than a coward who lives, straight up. So Paul says, join with me in this courage. Imitate me. What do I mean by that now then? Just consider this. You are not who you are because you decided to be who you are. You're who you are because you saw and heard things. And as you grew with the genes of your parents and then some of their patterns of what you saw and heard, that was added to a mix of whatever our society is, and that's who you are. You're like a tree planted in soil. You're not a god. You don't make truth. You don't even really discern it that well, although God made you to be able to tell some basic differences between right and wrong. So in this then, if you are not intentionally looking at things to imitate as a Christian, then you're imitating non-Christians, straight up. And they will start to change the way you think, your mind. You'll become afraid like they are, rather than confident like Christians are. Do you feel how we wobble in the wind? Aren't you glad our God is the one who does not snap the, the faintly flickering flame or break the uh, the... the uh, the grass that is slightly bent but comes in and heals it. That's who our God is. That's why this is imminent for us today, for the world, 
right now at this time. I've, I've said it to both uh, services before this, and I'm going to say it again now lest I forget it. I might as well just tangent. We'll come back to Paul. We'll tangent. I'm going to take issue with President-elect Joe Biden. And I don't care about who voted for who. Get over it. It's over. Whatever they decide up in the power structures, that's what we're going to get. So just get ready for whatever they decide. Okay? Stop arguing and hating each other. Before Joe Biden was named president-elect by the AP, which may or may not get him inaugurated, I don't know. In a debate with Donald Trump, when talking about Antifa, a movement that stands for anti-fascism, it's a German military communist movement that began under the Nazis to resist the Nazis and still exists as a military communist movement across the world to put communism everywhere. That's Antifa. Joe Biden said in the debate in response to Donald Trump, Antifa is an idea. And he meant to dismiss it. And I don't care who you are, Joe Biden, you are a fool. Not because of Antifa. An idea is the most dangerous thing in the world. And we got the best one. Because he's risen. And so you know what? I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. Ever. But don't ask me to listen to fools and not call them what they are. The most dangerous thing in the world is a bad idea. Right? You have kids, don't you? <laughs> so whatever he does, I don't know. I don't plan to fight Joe Biden except for to be a most pro-life congregation we can be. That's all I intend to make us do here. So I hope you're with me on that. Just an idea. I'm reading a bunch of books. I, I learned something from Brian Wolfmuller. I won't take you through the journey. It was like a three-and-a-half-month process. He taught me piece by piece. He's a great pastor. If you get to listen to his sermons online, you really should. Fantastic. He did this thing in the middle of COVID. In fact, partly while he had COVID, he rearranged his library. And it got me thinking, what's my library for? And I really have been pondering it for a while. And I didn't know until yesterday when I had laid out the books I plan to read before I die. That's one shelf. It's about 40. About half of them I read before, about half of them I have not. I plan to read about a page or two a day and change books every day but I can see the rest of my life and I know half of it. Regardless, I, mean, I guess the Lord could burn the books down, right? And I just have to wander. But, but the point being, what did I put there? Well, don't you want to know? Well, today I'm going to read at least two pages in The Search for Christian America, a book by Mark Knoll with Nathan Hatch, George Marson. It's a, back when they did scholarship at universities, I'm not sure they do anymore, many of them. But back when they did, what this was, was an intense looking at the historical documents of the founding of the United States from all parties involved, asking, were they Christians? And the answer is unequivocally, no. The United States was not founded as a Christian nation. If you think it is, you're just blowing smoke. Now, what I find interesting and why I'm looking forward to reading this again is because I think that they missed something. I think they're right in terms of some of the things like certain founding fathers who clearly took their Bible and cut passages out with scissors and stuff like that. Like, well, problematic. But I also am just a weird enough guy that my undergraduate degree is a bachelor's in creative writing poetry, 
which to get at Sonoma State University, you've never heard of it, it's Northern California. I had to take a couple of real classes <laughs> like Shakespeare and early American literature. Early American literature is a weird class. My professor told me, if you wanna be a professor, you can't be, not in English. There won't be any jobs for you, don't do it, unless you want to teach early American literature. Why? It's a black lady, by the way. Why? Oh, because it's really boring and there's so little of it. It ended up being a fascinating class, but it was very dry. As a result, I can tell you, I read the Puritans, like the actual ones. What little they left us, I read them. I had to for class. And I can tell you that they thought they were founding the Christian country. Very firmly, they believed that this place was a place to freely practice Christianity and show what Christianity does. Now, where are we now? Well, that's what I want to read more about. It's what I want to try to figure out. I might as well then bring up the point from Talk Them Into It this week, which is on page 21, that you are not divisible. Your allegiance is not divisible. So this flag we've had in the back of our sanctuary since it got put in during World War I and II because we were afraid they would think we were Nazis and bad guys and stop our churches, so we brought them in. And then post-World War II, because of what the boys did over there, which was a good thing, we couldn't get them out. They're still here, even though the football stadiums are like letting guys not respect them. And in various city streets, they're being burned. I don't care that it's there. I want to know why it's there. I know that at a Lutheran day school with both of those flags, including the Methodist one that we really shouldn't have here, but I put up with it, whatever, it doesn't matter. I know I was taught to salute both of these flags as a kid. It was drilled into me every morning. I wish the creed and the Ten Commandments had been, but nonetheless, it was one nation under God. Any God, honestly, just one big one. Guys, they've been teaching atheism in school for like 50 years. What do you expect it's going to look like? And then who's your allegiance to? So my allegiance to the United States is equal to my allegiance to Jesus Christ as my king, who says, obey Caesar. And we don't have a Caesar. We inherited a land from people who threw off a Caesar. So what do we do? Well, we do the best we can in Babylon. We buckle in. What are you? You're a citizen. You have your constitution. You have your bill of rights. What should you do with that? Protect your neighbors. Protect your neighbors. That's what Christians in America do. That's what that flag should mean. That's why the Plymouth Puritans came here. They wanted a society where people did not take but shared. I don't think we're ever going to build that in such a way that the evil men don't come and tear it all down. But again, when you have nothing there for them to take, they're less likely to show up on Sunday. It gets a little empty. Uh, it's just the word of God. It gets a little you know, tedious even. Paul says, cut through all of this like a knife by imitating his desire to live as one who is not deceived by the mythologies of the age, whatever they may be. I think it's important that you acknowledge that even though you may die before it happens, should Jesus Christ Terry, that is, not return for, say, another 1,000 or 2,000 or 3,000 years, which is fully possible because no one knows the day or the hour, as it's pretty clearly said. Well, then the United States is going to fall. It will. 
I don't want it to during my lifetime. I don't plan to make that happen. But I'm not going to pretend that by voting in this election, I really made a difference. And I'm going to tell you that if you thought so, and you chased it like it was the future, and you haven't been praying the Psalms, and haven't been reading Proverbs, I don't know why you think God would answer your prayers. Our prayers. Now, I'm preaching the choir because you're here, but I'm preaching the world on the internet. Here's the fact. I'll just say it the way Luther said it. Thank God there's still one widow praying for us because we're almost done. As soon as she stops praying, it's all over. That's how he saw it. We don't even believe there's a supernatural war going on. The devil's trying to shut all the churches in this country right now. He's trying to get the Christians to do it for him. Paul says, those whose... Oh, ah, sorry. I wish I could have transitioned nicely. I can't. Jump to verse 18, though. Paul's about to get serious. We thought it was serious before. I'll move us fairly swiftly to the end, but Paul's about to get serious. Page turn. Verse 18. Why is this such a big deal? For many walk of who I am told you often and now tell you even with weeping. They are the enemies of the cross of Christ. I'm going to read that whole verse to you in Greek too because it just set, you can hear his, his fear in the language. Not fear in the bad way, but like his, his zeal, I guess, is the word. He wants them to understand. There are humans who hate Jesus. There are people who say, I'm a Christian, who hate Jesus. And you don't know it because they say they hate Jesus. They just don't listen to him. They just don't listen to him. Now, verse 19 says, what happens to them? This is how the cities fall, the same thing. Their God, excuse me, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. That's that incurvatus idea. They're serving themselves all the time. Their glory is their shame. Boys Town, anybody? Uh, who set their mind? Here's the mind coming back at the end of verse 19. They set their mind on earthly things or worldly things or temporal things. It's not about heaven being better than earth. It's about recognizing dust for what it is. And if you set your heart on dust, then dust is what you will have after the fire comes. But we, verse 20, I'm going to give you some Greek here too. Hemon, that's we. Gar, that's for. Tapalituma huronais uparke. I love it. Palituma. Palituma. With everything that's going on in the last six months that you can't hear the English in palituma. Palituma politics. It's right there. But our politics are in heaven under submission. Not Donald and Joe, you and me. Our politics, our city, our life is under the arche of Jesus. What a thing. What hope. 
And so we wait from there, this Savior, the Lord Jesus, who, resurrection, I've preached to you for years now, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, which, by which, excuse me, yeah, according to the working by which, he is able even to subdue all things to himself. The Greek there is about as clunky as the English. But again, the idea is that Jesus' body is different than ours. He's God as a man. And now, by flesh and blood and sacrament, you're becoming one with him. And when he comes back, it is not yet revealed what we will be, but we will be like him in that godliness. Not God essence, like eternal son, but sons of men. Sons of the son of man, the new Adam. That is what we will be. Therefore, chapter 4, verse 1 has to go with this. Therefore, my beloved, my longed-for brothers... My joy and my crown, you stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Christians in America today have a choice. We can keep pretending the emperor has clothes on and playing the gaslight game everybody else is playing. Or we can just start talking with a little common sense and dealing with our issues where we are under the word of God. And if you live in the heart of some of these cities, I think it means, wow, open your eyes. And if you live in the middle of nowhere, I think it means, wow, open your eyes. The Lord Jesus Christ is the King and Lord of all. He has all this in his hands. I had a friend say to me just the other day, and I'm trying to say it right here to close us. He remembered hearing stories about great men like Dr. Martin Luther, who really, I mean, he could have been drawn and quartered. He could have had his skin flayed. He could have been burned alive. I mean, they were doing that kind of stuff to people like him. And quite a thing for him to stand up. And, and my friend said, I remember reading about him and thinking how it was amazing that they could stand at times like that and thinking how I never wanted to live at such a time. And then I find my life, whether it's a big or a bad, up or down, is always such a time. Such a time that I don't think I want to be in. Such a time that I don't want to have. But maybe it's for such a time as this that I was born. To be different than I thought I was. Because he is risen. Because you are paid for. Because you're immortal now. Because he won't be long anyway. The water seals it and the food Food feeds it, and it's free to join us. In the name of Jesus.